our budget, it, it makes it pretty easy of where you go. Craigslist. And so uh, maybe you've had this experience. You're going on Craigslist. You know your budget, and you're looking for a deal. And, and you're going, and you're searching, and, and uh, Callie and Lydia would send me, they would search, and then they'd send me the link. Hey, check out this one. And I'm like, yeah, junk, 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 whatever. Um, but as you do that, every now and then you come across one of those deals that's too good to be true. And here's the thing about those deals too good to be true. They normally are. <laughs> in fact, on Craigslist, they always are. I think they sent me one. It's like, hey, 2016 Forerunner, perfect shape, uh, $4,000. Like, mm. you know, you're going to respond to that and be like, oh, I'm the prince of Afghanistan or whatever, and, and I have to go back home real quick and just send me the money and I'll send you the, I mean, maybe you've experienced some of that junk. Those deals are too good to be true. In general, when we go to make a deal, and we make deals all the time, we're trying to look for something mutually beneficial. You know, I went to see quite a few vehicles, and, and we would talk about the car, and I'm like, this thing's not as good as you think it is. I'll offer you this. And they're like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take this. I'm like, well, no, not a good enough deal. We leave. Until finally we find the one that we want. Oh, I'll offer you this. No, this. Now we can't do it. Oh, what's your lowest? And then we walk away with the car and then put more money into it. But... That's the type of deal. And we make deals all the time. I mean, even going to the grocery store, right? You're going to the grocery store. You're like, oh, four ears of corn for a dollar. Good deal. I'm, I'm getting eight. Uh, or you go to the meat section lately, and it's like, ground beef, $10 a pound. We'll eat chicken. You, you, you know? <laughs> but we're always making deals, whether we realize it or not. It's part of who we are and always been part of, of humanity making deals that try and, and work out for both. Here's the question I want to ask today. Does God make deals with us? Does God make deals with men and women, children, boys, kids, girls? Does he make deals? Well, the answer really is, is yeah, God, God does make deals. And Palm Sunday, this is what today is. Palm Sunday kicks off uh, the, the Holy Week. This is when we remember Jesus riding on a colt into Jerusalem. You know, it's called the triumphal entry because as he rode in, people screamed out, Hosanna, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they were recognizing him as king, as the Messiah predicted from the Old Testament, this king coming, and they were putting down their palm branches, they were taking their cloaks off and land so that the animal he's riding didn't step on the dirt. I mean, it was this beautiful scene. But it kicked off Holy Week. That was a Sunday. The next Sunday, Jesus would rise from the dead because the Friday, he would be killed. He would be hung on a cross. What a switch happened that week. But I don't want to look at the triumphal entry, although that's Palm Sunday. I want to look at one day in that week. On Thursday, Thursday night, Jesus had a meal with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper. And they were remembering, they were celebrating the Passover meal. And if you don't know what that is, that's a great study because it's a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. But they go to have this meal together, and that night, Jesus would be betrayed. That night, Jesus would be arrested. That night, he would go before these mock trials, and the next morning, he would be dead. This last meal, in that meal, he was making a deal. As he rode into Jerusalem, he was riding to make a deal. And we don't think of it that way often. But he had his eyes set on the cross, and he was going to make a deal between God and man. And if we really break it apart, he was kind of the broker of the deal. He was kind of the middle between God and us. But being God in flesh, he, he was all God. He was 100% God, and he was coming to make a deal. 
And that's what we're talking about today, that on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem in order to make a new covenant between God and mankind. A covenant. We're going to talk about that word in a minute, because that's a better word than deal. The Bible uses the word covenant. Turn to Luke 22, if you would, please. Luke 22. It's in Luke 19 that Jesus rides in the triumphal entry. And then you see what happens over the next couple days, some of his teaching, some of his miracles, the things that he does. But in Luke 22, starting in verse 14, we see one little snippet in this meal that they have. Before this meal, if you remember, Jesus uh, took his clothes off, put a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. Then in this meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate here often, every other week. We're doing it two weeks in a row, today and next week, because this is our time to remember this new deal, this new covenant that Jesus made with us. So read with me Luke 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we have this accurate picture of, of history, what actually happened when you had this last supper with your apostles. I thank you for this new covenant. I thank you that, that you do all the work for us. And I, I just pray right now that you would help us to understand. God, if any of us in here don't have a grasp on what you did, on the gospel, on how we can have life in you, that you would clarify that to us today. But God, I, I also pray that this would lead all of us to worship, that as we recognize this deal that you made for us and with us, this new covenant, that it would draw us deeper and deeper in love with you. That's why we exist. We exist to love you. We exist to worship you. And we're going to get to worship and love you in relationship forever and ever. But we want it to start now. We want to enjoy you now. We want to glorify you now. So do your work in us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at these verses. Verse 14, it, it begins this way, and this is kind of neat. It says, and when the hour came, a quick reading, and the hour came, oh, it's dinner time, right? It's 4.30 or whatever, when the hour came. That simple little phrase is so much deeper because throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus repeat over and over, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His first miracle, if you remember, he turned water into wine. So, you know, it tells you a little bit about Jesus. And here they're drinking wine, but he turns water into wine. But before that, it was his mother. His mother came and said, hey, we're at this wedding, and there's a problem with the wine. They ran out. And Jesus' response was, woman, what does that have to do with me? Which is more respect than that sounds like. He said, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then later... Later, he would uh, claim to be equal with God. You know, he would say, if you've seen God, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He claims this equality with God, and the Jews hear that, and they go, that's blasphemy, and they pick up stones to stone him, 
and he just kind of disappears. I mean, it doesn't say how he did. He just kind of works his way through the crowd and is gone. And it says, because his hour had not yet come. Jesus came to live a perfect life, to show us what God is like, and then to go to the cross. The cross is his hour. The time of suffering was his hour. And over and over, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And here he sits down. Think of the weight on his heart when he said this. Or he didn't say it here, but, but you know, as it started, he knew this was on his mind. The hour has come. The time has come. The hour has come for him to go make that new deal, that new covenant. Before I look at that new covenant, I want to look at a couple things he said. He says it twice, verse 16. He says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. They have this supper, and he says, there's going to be another supper. The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be another feast later. He says, I'm not going to eat of this stuff again until that feast. And then he says it again in verse 18. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. All of this is looking forward to actually the fulfillment of this new covenant at the end. All of this looks forward to Jesus' return in glory at the end when every believer, living or dead, will receive a new body and then will dwell in the new Jerusalem, will dwell in the new kingdom, which will be physical for eternity. So he's looking forward to that time. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember, we, we drink of the cup, we eat of the bread. We're remembering what Jesus did, looking forward to him coming back and it all being perfect. I mean, this is, there's so much hope in this. He's like, later, we're going to have another feast. Later, we're going to drink wine again, but we're going to do it together in perfect bodies in glory. It's going to be physical. So if you're here and you've always had the picture that heaven is like, we're on a cloud and we're playing harps. You're like, I don't really want to go there. Uh, remember the old song, heaven is a wonderful, anyway. Good song. I want to go there. That was the part I always liked. We'd all yell it out. I want to go. We do want to go there. It's going to be physical, and it's going to be set off with this great meal with Jesus sitting at the head of the table, breaking bread again and passing it. How neat is that going to be? But now look at verse 20. Verse 20, he refers to this cup, and this is what we remember when we take communion. He says, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. What, what is a covenant and why is one necessary? Why is a new one necessary? What is a covenant? We make deals all the time. We make contracts and those things. A covenant is a little bit different. A covenant is deeply personal. It's a deeply personal agreement between two parties outlining the requirements and benefits of the relationship. Notice the word relationship. A covenant isn't just a deal. It's not just a business deal. It's a relationship deal. What, where do we use the word covenant the most in our day and age? Marriage, right? I mean, that's the one we, we talk about, the marriage covenant, a deeply personal but legal agreement between two people, a covenant. And that's what a covenant is, a deeply personal and legal agreement. And a typical covenant, just like a typical contract, is two parties. I will do this, you will do this, you agree, you sign on the dotted line, whatever, and you fulfill your two sides. Sometimes there's a one-way covenant. Sometimes there's a I promise to do this, period. Think about parents when you had your first child, or all of them hopefully, <laughs> and you're holding that baby and you look at it and you go, I promise to love you. I promise to protect you. I promise to take care of you. The baby doesn't respond. I promise to be obedient. I, you, right? And, you know, I promise to give back to you when I grow up. I promise to not crash the cars. I promise to what, whatever. 
that's not the way it works from parents to kids. It's I promise, and then the rest of our lives, right, we do our best to fulfill that promise. That is really a, a one-sided. As they get older, it becomes this relationship, which is, is very parallel to us and the Father. But this covenant, now, to get to know God a little bit, so we can understand the new covenant, we're going to look at a couple other covenants, three specifically. In the Old Testament, we see other deals that God made with mankind or with people called covenants. And here's the first one. Uh, and it's not the first covenant, but the first one we're going to mention, the Noahic covenant. If you remember that, God destroyed all of the earth with the flood. Uh, by the way, archaeology supports this. The earth was destroyed with the flood. Noah and his family and all the animals were saved, the ark, all that. Um, at the end of that, water recedes, Noah comes out, and God makes a deal with Noah, which is really for all mankind. He says, I will not destroy the earth again with the flood. FYI, he will destroy it again later, but it will be with fire next time and remake it. But he promises, I'm not going to do it with a flood, and here's proof, the rainbow. So yeah, scientific, water, whatever. God gave that as a promise, as a seal for this deal, this covenant he made not to destroy the earth again with a flood. That's the first one. The Davidic covenant. Remember uh, King David, the second king of Israel. A man that was, uh, God said, he is a man after my own heart. He loved the Lord. He made some great mistakes, but he loved the Lord. God made a deal with David, and he said, your family, somebody from your, your line, your seed will sit on the throne forever. He made this promise of an eternal kingdom, and he fulfilled it. That was a one-sided covenant, a one-sided promise. And by the way, Jesus is that heir of David. Jesus is the one that was descendant from the line of David, and he is on the throne, and he will then physically, when he returns, he's going to sit on that throne forever and ever and ever. It's going to be awesome. So he made that promise to David, a one-sided covenant. And then the third one, and I want to dig into this one a little bit, the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember that, Abraham was a man. Uh, he was not from a, a godly area. His family did not worship the one true God, but God came to Abraham and he said, I'm doing something new. He started something. This was part of history. He started something making Abraham the father of the Israelite nation, which would lead to Jesus, which would lead to this new covenant. And now God in his church, it all started really there with Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant. And in that covenant, he promises three things. Land, seed, meaning many descendants, and Jesus as that seed, and then blessing. I will bless you, period. And again, we see a lot of that fulfillment in Jesus. And this is going to be fulfilled eternally as well, this Abrahamic covenant. And we are now included, as you study the book of Hebrews and other things, we are kind of then brought in as God's people with some of these promises. But this was a unilateral covenant. God promised, boom, I'm going to do this, one-sided. And this parallels very much the new covenant. And so this is why I want to look at it, because we get to know God. You'll see this in Genesis 15, 9 through 20. We're going to put it up here. But, but God tells Abraham he's going to do this. His name was Abram until God changed his name to Abraham. He tells me he's going to do it. And Abraham, again, not coming from a tradition of following the one true God, says, how do I know this is going to be true? And God condescends to him. He, he, he takes a human way of doing things and uses it to make a point, which I think is helpful. And in that day and age, the way they would do a covenant is they would take animals, they would cut them in half, and they would both walk through the middle, saying, I'll fulfill my side of the covenant, 
And if I don't, let me be like these animals cut in half. I mean, aren't you glad we don't do that nowadays? But, but that's how they did it. So God condescends. He says, I'm going to use this picture you understand to teach you a lesson about me and about this covenant I'm making with you. Genesis 15, 9 through 20, select verses. After Abraham says, how do I know your promises are going to be true? God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. What did God do in this, in this deal that he makes, in this covenant? He puts Abram to sleep. He, you know, Abraham goes and, again, his name right here is Abram. It's going to be changed to Abraham. He gets the animals. He does what God says. And he's probably planning, we're making a deal, and I'm going to pass through too. But God says, go to sleep. And he puts him to sleep. And then he shows up in the form of a, a torch. Here you see fire. Often God comes in the form of fire, and he passes between. What does that mean? This is deeply significant. He says, I promise, and you can bring nothing to the table, so I'm going to put you out of commission so you just watch me make the promise. Abraham had nothing to bring. God says, I promise, period. By the way, the new covenant is the same way. We bring nothing to the table. That's both humbling and freeing. But what does Abraham do? Well, in Genesis 15, 6, it says this. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. What was Abraham's part of the covenant? Belief. Belief. God came to him and he said, I'm going to give you these things. Abraham believed. That's it. That's it. What a beautiful picture. He believed God. You know what this is called? Grace. This is called grace. Undeserved favor. A gift given that cannot be reciprocated. Grace. Now, Jesus said, though, here in Luke, I am making a new covenant. Well, if he's making a new covenant, that must mean there's an old one that's being replaced. It's not the Abrahamic, it's another covenant, the Mosaic. And this is helpful for us to understand, to really grasp what God, who God is, what he's done, and now our relationship with God. So this Mosaic covenant was a two-way covenant. It was one where God says, I will do this if you do this, I will do this if you don't do this, you know, laid out. So Deuteronomy 8, 28, 1 and 2. God says through Moses, to Moses, to his people, says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, by the way, there were 613 of them, not just the 10 we think of, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and bless you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then in that area, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you see this law kind of laid out. All these rules that they were to follow. And the story of the Old Testament and the Israelites is follow God, blessed. Stray from God, 
cursed. They repent. God forgives and God restores. It's just this pattern like this, up and down and up and down. And God knew it would be that way. In fact, now under the new covenant, we understand why he gave this law, this picture to say, you can't fulfill it. Here's 613. You can't do it. Try as you might, you can't do it. But God in his grace gave them a system under that law of sacrificing. He gave them an animal. He said, once a year, you go and you sacrifice this animal. And by the way, they had to kill it themselves. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So they did this year after year because they tried to follow the law and they couldn't. And so God offered this. But they were looking forward. They knew this one wasn't permanent because God had already given them a promise and God continually uh, reaffirmed throughout the Old Testament through his prophets, something new is coming. Wait for it. Something new is coming. I'm going to make a new covenant. Before we look at that real quick, do you ever feel this way? By the way, every religion is this way. Do this to get this. Do you ever feel like, well, God loves me when I'm good, but God's against me when I'm bad. You know, and you try really hard to be good, and then you feel good about your relationship with God. Then you make some mistakes. Oh, and now you're not so good about you and God. And the problem that we get in with that is either we do really good and we're proud of it, or we do really bad and we feel so guilty that maybe it even keeps us away from church. Maybe you're here because it's Palm Sunday or you'll be here next week because it's Easter or there's a baptism, but you really think, I'm too dirty to go into that place. If those people really knew about me, they wouldn't let me in. You're right, we wouldn't. <laughs> but if you really knew things about me, you'd walk out. I mean, in all honesty, we, we all have, have these past and these, and these struggles, and we think, oh, we got to get ourselves cleaned up to come to God. God says, there's nothing you can bring. There's nothing you can bring. And when we understand that, which is what the law helps us understand, we can't do it. There's nothing we bring to the table. Then we start to understand the new covenant, what Jesus came to actually do. And the promise looking forward is made in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Looking forward, it said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what they were looking forward to. And by the way, don't be distracted by this as with the, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Yes, God made this promise of a new covenant with the Israelites as they were God's chosen people. But it spreads to the rest of mankind. That's also what's new about this new covenant. It's not just with a nationality, which others in the Old Testament could be brought into the people of God. Men had to be circumcised, so not many probably did it. But for now, this covenant spreads to all mankind. We're all brought into this so that we can all, look at this, the law will be within them. No longer will the law just be an external follow these rules. It will be in their hearts if you've given your life to Christ, you know this. There's something in you, you want to please God. Even though you don't do it perfectly, you want to. You understand some things. All of us, when you gave your life to Christ, you started to read the word and go, I understand some things I didn't understand before. 
He writes the law in our hearts. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer would it be this, you be good, you're blessed, you're not good, I cast you out until you repent. No, it's a permanent thing. I will be your God. This is the promise he makes to you. I will be your God, period. And this is maybe the best part. I will remember their sin no more. That was the part they were looking forward to. Wait a minute. No more blood all over the place year after year as I sacrifice for all these sins? He will remember their sins no more. John, in the, in the Gospel of John, you see uh, John the Baptist. And he's standing on the road and he's got some of his disciples and Jesus comes walking down the road. You know what he says? John 1.29. He says, check it out. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that phrase, look at, look at him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew, he had an idea, this new covenant was coming where the sacrifices would be done because Jesus would be the perfect, perfect sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus says here in, in Luke 22.20, this is the new covenant in my blood, a permanent covenant, a one-sided covenant. The promised new covenant would no longer be based on outward compliance, but rather God would permanently change the hearts of his people. This is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news. This is why Paul likes Easter so much, I hope. <laughs> it's the good news. It is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. His hour had came. He did what he came to do. It is done. I've covered your sins with my blood. Oh, my goodness. If you, if you had good parents, you experienced some of this law, some of these rules and things, and you, oh, go fail, oh, go fail, and you understand, I need God's grace I'm a sinner in need of, of salvation, but I can bring nothing to the table. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, set to make this new covenant. The new covenant in Jesus' blood replaced that old Mosaic covenant. It replaced the law. Yet why do we so often want to bring the law back in? And we do this as Christians. We, we wouldn't call the Mosaic Law. We don't follow the 613. But we still often try and bring in these rules. And maybe we place these rules on other people before they can come to God. That's not the way it works. Jesus came to give life. To give forgiveness. A restored relationship with God. But what's the deal that he made? The deal was, because Scripture makes it very clear, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you deserve death, meaning eternal death, physical death, but also eternal death in hell. And so, so God comes along and he says, here's the new deal I'm going to make. Here's the new covenant. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you a restored relationship with me. And here's the cost, the blood of Jesus. So he says, I'm going to give you all this, but it's going to cost, and I'm going to pay the cost. That is not a fair deal. That's not a fair deal. That's a too-good-to-be-true deal. But it has to be because you can bring nothing to the table. Bible says our best deeds done in ourselves are filthy rags. And so we need this good news. This is why true biblical faith is, is far and away above every other false religion out there. Because every single one tells you what to do to get right. You know, like it's this, this thing, you know, God's going to weigh your good and your bad. No, you can bring nothing. You are free. Jesus brings it all. Jesus paid the price. And it's not fair. Is it too good to be true? Yes, it is. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Why? Why do we struggle with this new covenant? Because it takes out our pride. Because you can't be good enough. Right? I mean, I'm one of those people. I want to, you know, pay me what I deserve. I want to work for it, whatever. I want to achieve it. This, there's no achieving. It's we are miserable and wretched apart from God. Jesus dies for, and then saves us. And we don't stay, by the way, we don't stay miserable and wretched in our sin. He then changes us. Then life begins where he then draws us into this relationship. He makes us more like Jesus as we abide in him, as we walk in him. And God does some great things in and through us. Listen, the new deal God made with men and women is that he will take our curse and give us the blessing. Not based on our actions, but based on Jesus's. That's the deal. And what's our side? What's our part? Just like Abraham's belief. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God has made this deal. Jesus already made the deal. He already did all the price, and now he offers it. And all we do is say, thank you. We receive his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Why would we reject it? He's already paid it. It's like this check that he's written. And he's written it to you, and he signed it, and he gives it to you, and you put it in your pocket, you're like, maybe someday I'll cash that check. And some people never cash the check, but it's already signed out. It's already paid. All we have to do is accept it. By faith, receive what Jesus has done for us. You know, why do we talk about this on Palm Sunday? Because hopefully today is the day we re-worship where we remember what Jesus did. Why do we do the Lord's Supper so often? Because we never forget this. Our faith is based on the cross, and we never move past it. We never mature past the cross. We always come back to it, looking and saying, Jesus, this is what you did on the cross. You shed your blood for me. My sins are covered. There's no pride in true biblical faith, only humility. And when we truly grasp it, what's it lead us to? Thankfulness. True worship. Now here's the thing. When we're saved, when we believe and we surrender, the Holy Spirit enters our life. He starts to mold us and change us. The old covenant with Abraham, what was the sign of that one? Circumcision. We have a sign with a new covenant. You know what it is? Baptism. Baptism. It's done one time. One time when we believe, we repent, we turn, we are then baptized. And in that baptism is a picture of God taking us, uniting us with Jesus. That's what the Bible says. That when, we are, when we're saved and when we're baptized, it's a picture of us being united with Jesus. We're united with his death because we deserved it and he paid it. Then we're united with his resurrection because he rose from the dead three days later. His payment was accepted by the Father. Then we get that risen life as well. Now and for eternity. And now we get the Holy Spirit to walk. And so the Bible says this and, and we say this when we get baptized. Died with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised to walk in newness of life. Not raised saved to live like you used to. Raised to walk in newness of life. And so baptism is this symbol of the new life, of then being brought into the community of believers. And so today we are going to do baptism. We are going to celebrate what God has done by giving new life with a few more baptisms. And so those of you getting baptized... If you would, come on up here. All right. You just jumped right up. All right, come on up here, Elena. Since you're here, 
Come on up. <laughs> the, you, like me to take off my shoes. you should probably take off your shoes.